You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Paranormal Challenges! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host today. With me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Howdy. Skeptics like proof. Evidence. The scientific method. It's kind of our thing. We often talk about the various kinds of proof we would accept for different kinds of claims, and that proof is generally commensurate to the claim. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. For many claims, we can do that testing ourselves, like with homeopathic sleeping medicine. Always fun to watch a bunch of skeptics take a bunch of homeopathic sleeping medicine and nothing happen. Yep. Just make sure it is, you know, diluted to 30C and not right. like 5C the way some <laughs> remedies are. <laughs> Other claims, we can see the results of their predictions, like with many psychics. Uh, I still like the end of the year psychic roundup uh, podcast that uh, some of them do, that they take all the predictions that people have made and see if there are any hits at all <laughs> across the world of psychics. Perpetrators of scams, faith healing, telekinesis, and other paranormal feats don't usually want to be examined too closely. Most of them know that what they're doing is in some way not on the level, and the rest of them have some sort of self-delusion, like it doesn't work if the subject doesn't believe in it, or it stops working if it's being examined. I'm invisible! Can you see me? Yes! Wow. Maybe you should put some shorts on or something if you want to keep fighting evil today. And as we know, a declining efficacy rate as the test conditions get stricter is a pretty good indication that the effect doesn't really exist, whether that's a drug being tested or a psychic. Sometimes, though, we get the rare person or group who gives us the opportunity to directly test their claims. Often, the lure is cash money. (laughs) (laughs) The first recorded offer of cash for a proven paranormal claim was the 1922 challenge by Scientific American to produce a photograph of a spirit under test conditions or for the first psychic to produce a visible spirit manifestation, each of which were worth $2,500 U.S. dollars to anyone who could manage it. George Valentine... Not 100% sure on how to pronounce that. I'm going with my best guess. Attempted to claim the second prize, and he was tested in 1923. He used a trumpet in his seances and claimed that the spirits used the trumpet to touch his guests and to speak to them. The test room had a chair, which was rigged so that if George left the chair, it would flip a switch attached to a light in the next room. George did not know about that. (laughs) The light revealed that during the test, George left his chair 15 times for sometimes up to 18 seconds, and those curiously corresponded to the times during which the trumpet was active, (laughs) touching his guests and telling them things. George was not able to claim this prize. (laughs) (laughs) And a Scientific American denounced him as a cheater. There was also several books written about him later on in his life about all of the various methods that he used to cheat, which was pretty fun. <laughs> he didn't just claim that the, that while the spirit was using the trumpet, the spirit was also levitating him slightly out of his chair. <laughs> I did not hear that excuse. That, uh, that's a good one, though. He, he should have been quick on his feet like that. Hmm. 
Since then, many groups and individuals have offered prizes to people who can, under agreed-upon conditions, prove the existence of the paranormal. One of the best-known challenges, the $1 million Paranormal Challenge, was offered by James Randi and his foundation for over 50 years, ending in 2015. Over a thousand people applied to take the challenge, and none were successful. Although most did not go on to complete a full test, but rather refused to agree on reasonable testing conditions or backed out for other reasons. So there weren't a thousand challenges to the paranormal challenge. There was just a thousand people who applied to take it. Uh, but there were quite a few that they actually did get to the, the final test on. Nobody managed to claim it. When you were at TAM, did you watch a preliminary challenge? Yeah, they were doing the uh, the balance bands when I was at uh, TAM 2012. And uh, I seem to recall that it was supposed to take place, and then they had set it all up, and they had started it, and then he, I don't know, got mad or something and left, and so the like real big one in front of the big audience never happened. Hmm. How about you? I don't think, th- I think we went to TAM and we went to TAM 8, which was... 2010. 2010. Yeah, I, I don't think there were any, maybe there was one, we just didn't, we just didn't uh, I feel like we would it. have attended yeah, if we I, knew I, about I, it. I don't, I don't think the media page one. says there was one from 2009 onward until oh, okay. the end of the oh, challenge. Well then, yeah, maybe we just didn't know about it, or maybe it was so preliminary, maybe they got into talks and then they didn't actually test or something. It's possible know. also that we watched it and just forgot because that was nine years ago now. <laughs> I'm going to look and see what that one was. Oh, yeah, this was Hal Bidlack, Derek Colanduno, and others are viewed by paranormal applicants for a missing kidney. Oh, no, I think we did see that one. <laughs> that one sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, you know what? This is probably Hal one Bidlack, of those things that I did Bidla- go to. Hal Bidlack was the uh, the MC that year, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, he was the MC for many years. But yeah, so they, they did a lot of these challenges, sometimes in front of audiences, sometimes privately. They would agree on the protocol to be followed, and then most of the time, when it failed, the uh, applicant would find some problem with the uh, protocol after the fact. Yep. Special pleading. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get that post hoc. Some of the tests are more or less expansive. Uh, so there's one put out by the Australian Skeptics, which offers 100000 Australian dollars for proof of ESP, telepathy, or telekinesis specifically. It has not yet been claimed in its 39-year history. Uh, I found this quote, which I really enjoy. The $100,000 is still up for grabs, however, with a number of benefactors guaranteeing the prize. They're reasonably confident that they won't have to contribute, so it's not that big a risk as far as they're concerned, Mr. Kelly said. If anyone did actually prove some sort of paranormal power, it would change things so dramatically in certain areas that probably they would consider it worth paying the money. (laughs) (laughs) The Tarkshil Society in India offers 10 million Indian rupees for anyone who can pull off one of 22 specified miracles. So you pick from the list, and Mm -hmm. if you can pull off one of those things, you're golden. Uh, And there's also one guy in New Zealand who offers $100,000 to, quote, anyone who could prove by psychic ability that they can indicate the exact location of two halves of a promissory note hidden within an area of 100 meters inside Stuart Lansborough's Puzzling World. Over the years, the search area has been reduced from five kilometers to 100 meters, and they have (laughs) doubled the prize. Uh, and they have taken the the promissory note and split it up in between two areas, so you can't just guess by chance. Contestants have to donate 1,000 New Zealand dollars to charity if they fail. 
Oh, nice. <laughs> so I looked up this uh, Landsborough's Puzzling World place just because it sounded interesting. And mm-hmm. I super want to go there. Like, I already want to go to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But this place sounds awesome. It's got, like, a 3D maze and all of these weird puzzles over a huge area that you can just, like, go in and play with all of these cool things. So sort it's of sort of like an, an amusement park, only with puzzles and games? Yeah. And weird buildings at all kinds of different angles. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> that would be really cool to see. Promo code L-U-E-E-10. <laughs> no, don't try that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't work out very well. There are so many of these different prizes that in 2003, when the $1 million prize was still available, the uh, prizes in their various denominations were calculated to have a combined value of $2,326,500 US dollars. Which is pretty decent if you can like douse for water, you can get almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently water dowsing is one of the most common things that these um, challenges accept as as applicants because they, they're so confident in their ability because they think that when they strike water, they're proven correct. And yeah. that's just not how that works. They have a stick, <laughs> Ashlyn. How can they be incorrect? Well, they, they yeah, they uh, they fail to test all of the all of the ways in which they can fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of confirmation bias that goes in. And then you got the idiomotor effect, which is just like a cool thing that convinces you that you can do th- something that you can't. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of dowsers are examples of people who genuinely think that their powers are real. Mm-hmm. And that's why they apply for these challenges and, right. and fail so often. So now, because of the uh, James Randi challenge being terminated, the prizes are now only worth $1,024,215 US. Hardly worth it. But it's still like a million bucks, guys. Come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Half a million after taxes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Center for Inquiry has an offshoot organization called the Independent Investigations Group, which I personally think has probably the best reach now that the million dollar challenge is defunct. Uh, So they offer a $100,000 prize to anyone who can show, under proper observing conditions, evidence of any paranormal, supernatural, or occult power or event. So that's, like, pretty big. Like, show me anything that is not part of our world as we know it, and you can have the money. Mm Mm-hmm. They generally ask the applicant to do a preliminary demonstration of their ability, which, if they're successful, they'll go on to design and agree upon really extensive testing methods. And uh, this organization thinks that it's really important to get the buy-in of the testee, which I think is really important. Yeah, and that's something that uh, that Randy did as well, right? Right. Yeah. I think, I feel like this group is even more, like, they really design it together and make sure that they are super into, like, yes, this is a great test of my power specifically. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, not something that they did for that original one with George there, because they didn't tell him about the light on the chair. Right. (laughs) So one of the people that they tested was uh, Anita Ikonen, who, like the person at TAM, claimed to be able to see inside people's bodies. And so in her preliminary test, uh, she just had to choose correctly which person out of six was missing a kidney. And she had three tests. So choose the person that doesn't have... Two kidneys should be pretty simple if you can see inside people's bodies. Uh, she guessed correctly one time out of three. Hmm. So not great. She failed her preliminary test. Some of the objects they've tested include the infamous power balance bracelet, also like the James Randi test. Uh, so these were plastic bracelets with little holograms in them that were supposed to increase your athletic ability. They tested four bracelets, three of which had the hologram removed and one of which included a piece of Pez candy. <laughs> The bracelets were taped so the athletes would not know which was which. 
From Wendy Hughes's report, quote, The claim was that if the hologram worked, the speed of the participants would increase, and it would show on the graph, but it didn't. <laughs> Out of 64 heats, 16 participants using four bracelets in four random heats, the results were almost flat. The main result was that if there was any change, the familiarity with the course caused a slight increase in efficiency. The Pez didn't make a difference either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember learning how to do that applied kinesiology trick that that they'll use in power balance demonstrations. Yeah. Where you and it's really cool and it is incredibly convincing. Even even to somebody who like knows that there is a trick, you get them to wear the bracelet and then you you just you can pull them in a slightly different way and it feels like they have a great sense of balance with it on and they could easily be pulled over with it off. Yeah, push wow. in towards their center of gravity versus pushing out yep. from there. Do you remember when we had the booth at the Red River X here mm-hmm. with the Winnipeg Skeptics? They had a bunch of people uh, trying to sell the power balance bracelets not too far from us. <laughs> so I remember myself and another member of the Skeptics, we went over there and, you know, just stood around talking loudly about the test and how you could <laughs> fool it. And it was, it was a good time. Yeah, I remember uh, I, I sat at that booth. I was uh, I was reading through my, my Bible at the time, and I eventually I took a break uh, and went and got a, a personality test from the uh, Scientologists yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's an overview of uh, some of the paranormal challenges that are out there. Lauren is going to talk to us a little bit about one of the original paranormal challenges. In 1963, one year before James Randi issued his more famous challenge that Ashwin just talked about, Dr. Abraham Kavor, fed up with the godmen, saints, yogis, and siddhas, issued his own challenge. The challenge itself was fairly simple. I, Abraham T. Kavor of Tiruvala, Pamankada Lane, Colombo 6, do hereby state that I am prepared to pay an award of 1,000 Sri Lankan rupees to anyone from any part of the world who can demonstrate supernatural or miraculous powers under foolproof and fraudproof conditions. This offer will remain open until my death or till I find the first real winner. I wonder if death came first. <laughs> Dr. Kavor then listed 23 miracles. I'm wondering what one they dropped for that other list of yours. <laughs> <laughs> these miracles that, if performed under the foolproof and fraudproof conditions, would net the demonstrator the rupees, which totaled about 643 American dollars. But in a country where the average household made 52,100 rupees, which is 288 American dollars, in 2018, it was a life-changing amount of money, especially in 1963. After setting his bet and listing the conditions, Dr. Kavor, the absolute legend, he <laughs> called out 26 known miracle performers by name to dare them to take him up on it. <laughs> nice. Love it. Abraham Kavor was born in 1898 in what is now the Indian state of Kerala. He earned his doctorate in Calcutta and spent his career working in botany, most of it teaching in Sri Lanka. Well, then it was Ceylon. After his retirement in 1959, he devoted his life to the rationalist movement in Sri Lanka. He was president of the Ceylon Rationalist Association until his death in 1978, and he edited its annual journal. He considered it his life's work to call out people who claimed to have any psychic powers. He was a fairly cutting writer and referred to these people as promoting cock and bull stories <laughs> in the summary he wrote about his challenge. In Dr. Kavor's lifetime, only one person put down a deposit, which was 1,000 rupees or $6.43, to take the challenge. Surprisingly, it wasn't one of these godmen, but a medical doctor from Bangalore. Dr. Venkata Riau, 
who believed that Guru Raghavendra Swamiji had a way for people to obtain divine powers. After a few attempts, Dr. Rao surrendered his deposit, though Dr. Kavor Wright. Later, getting wiser, probably after testing the claim of the miracle child himself at my request, he wanted his deposit returned. Much against my wish, I had to decline his request as it was against the conditions of my challenge. <laughs> so sorry. I highly recommend reading the entire conclusion by Dr. Kavor. It's always savage and very funny. <laughs> the challenge expired in 1978, as did Dr. Kavor. The challenge money went unclaimed, but Dr. Kavor and his wife Kunjama had both donated their bodies to Thurston College in Colombo, where I'm sure they helped to benefit many people. But wait, there's more. <laughs> After Dr. Kavor died, Basava Pramandand, the founder of the Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations, took up the mantle and offered the 100,000 Indian rupees out of his own pocket. Up until his death in 2009, no one was able to win that challenge either. Primandant was a fascinating person in his own right. He was an amateur magician, and he used his magic knowledge to expose the tricks of gurus and faith healers. British filmmaker Robert Eagle features Primandant showing these tricks in the documentary Guru Busters. Has anyone seen it? No. I haven't either, but I hope we can find it like for a movie night or something. <laughs> yeah. That would be really awesome. Sounds fun. I wonder if the person I'm going to be discussing is also in that, because I know he was involved in guru busting. Primandan was also a huge critic of the godman Setha Saibaba and was arrested for leading 500 volunteers to Saibaba's ashram in protest. He then sued Saibaba for materializing gold objects in violation of the Gold Control Act. <laughs> this case was dismissed, but he appealed unsuccessfully on the grounds that spiritual power is not a legally recognized defense. <laughs> Oh, so, so his claim was uh, gold is uh, gold is being controlled, so it is illegal for you to make more of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. You say you're doing it, and it's illegal. So yep. <laughs> that's that's totally the uh, the Al Capone on tax evasion thing. There, yeah. I did a lot of reading on these South Asian like guru busters, and they're savage and hilarious, and it's amazing. Like, it's a whole world we need to explore. It, that's something that I, I noticed when I was looking through that sort of preliminary list from Wikipedia. It's like, there's a lot of groups from India here. Like, this is really, I'm very curious about what this culture of, of challenges is there, but I didn't look into it more. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's because there's all the godmen and the, right. the fakers. And there's so many charlatans. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, yeah, like it, it's dual cultures in a way, you know, it's, it's very common to have the one and so then the other springs mm -hmm. up as well. They feed off each other in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, yeah, it was very promising and it's awesome to know that they're just not having any of it and <laughs> letting the world know. Yeah. Unfortunately, the fake gurus are pretty savage themselves. Sai Baba had, there was four alleged attempts of murder of Pramandan by Sai Baba or his followers and plenty of times that he got beaten up, but they didn't work. And he met his end following a battle with cancer in, in 2009. He also donated his body to science. Hmm. This paranormal challenge has succeeded both of its human hosts. Does that make it evidence of paranormal activity? <laughs> <laughs> And so is, reincarnated. Yeah. <laughs> and it is now held up by the Indian Rationalist Association. The Federation of Indian Rationalist Associations, which is a different thing. We've got a, like a People's Front of Judea thing going on here. <laughs> Are you the Judean People's Front? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. But that was Pramandan's umbrella group. 
It offered its own challenges during both the 2008 and 2014 Indian elections. During each, psychics were invited to correctly answer 21 out of 25 questions relating to the future election result. Both of these prizes, 200,000 Indian rupees in 2008 and 1 million Indian rupees in 2014, also went unclaimed. And now Laura is going to tell us about another guru buster. Uh, I'd say more of a medium buster. Ooh, all right. Yeah. So have any of you heard of Joseph Dunninger? No, I only, uh, so I kept thinking that the uh, founder of the uh, investigation group that I was talking about I sounded do. similar. Uh, and so I kept looking back at your message about who you were doing to make right. sure that I wasn't going to talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. that's the only thing I know about him is his name. I've never heard of him before. How about you two? The name sounds familiar. Uh, maybe it'll ring a bell once you get into your segment, but no, not off the top of my head. I purposely did not because you were going to tell us about him. Okay. So now we've all heard of Houdini, Harry Houdini, mm-hmm. correct? I mean, yes. it's kind of like who hasn't heard of Houdini for the most part. Well, my children won't have, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um it, so Dunninger was not quite a contemporary of Houdini, although apparently they had um, somewhat of a friendship there. He um, he was uh, around and alive at the same time as Houdini, and so Dunninger wasn't exactly a contemporary of Houdini. He was alive and around at the same time as Houdini, and they did have a bit of a friendship, but Dunninger really came to fame after Houdini's death. Um, it was sort of like he he picked up where Houdini left off after his untimely tragic death. I'm surprised I haven't heard of him then. Yeah, so he was actually a pretty big deal in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He started off as a magician, much like Houdini, doing the typical stage tricks, his show ended up moving into more of a mind-reading type show, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, so just hold that thought for a moment. <laughs> Another thing that he had in common with Harry Houdini is that he really didn't like the spiritualism movement, mm. and he was not a fan of mediums and seances. He was convinced that they were frauds and they were bilking people out of money and and getting people to put a lot of faith and trust in them when they didn't deserve it. And so much like Houdini, he would hold uh, sort of seance-busting parties. And this is where his part of the challenge came in. So he was really, really uh, well off from his stage performances. He was commanding performance fees in the in the number of 1000 to $1,500 in the 1930s and 40s. Her performance. That's a lot of money for mm-hmm. for a performer of this type there. So he was making a lot. So he would put out his own $10,000 challenges, again, in the 30s and 40s, $10,000, a lot of money, to these uh, mediums to say, if you can prove that you are showing me something that I can't explain in some scientific or physical way and I can't reproduce, I'll give you the money. And he was never able to do it. He apparently also put out a challenge of anybody who can show him an actual ghost, he would give them $10,000. Just bring me a ghost. Yeah. So It's a (laughs) ghost. He was 
Now, this man, he was a marketer of himself. Not not only was he a performer, but he was a marketer. He was brazen with this. Apparently, in 1929, he went to a medium's show and he ran up on stage and challenged him and offered him (laughs) $21,000 if he could prove that what he was doing was real. Like he had to, uh, I believe, read uh, or predict what was on a card in in his pocket mm-hmm. and the medium just refused to do it and threw him out of the show. But that's just, that was sort of that, that um, brazenness of this guy. And this is just how he operated with these types of things. He was a prolific author, although of course there were ghost authors involved with this ghost pun <laughs> unintended, but we'll take it. And he had many books written about the tricks that mediums would do. And he would, again, he would show how they were done. So he, um, similar to the test that you were talking about, Ashlyn, with the the light attached to the chair from Mm -hmm. the medium that got up, he would sort of recreate these types of seance experiences and explain how these phenomena were happening. And he would also be involved when there were challenges. He would be one of the critics on it and say, for example, oh, well, you know, we're going to tie the medium down to the chair. And he would say, well, you have to use, you can't just use one long rope because anybody who knows anything about rope tricks can get in and out of those. You Mm -hmm. have to use smaller ropes. And then when they did that, the medium, nothing happened during the seance. Well, and that's another way that he was like Houdini then, because in that um, 1922 Scientific American Challenge, uh, Houdini was one of the people who was on the the panel of judges, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, Dunninger followed in those steps because mm-hmm. Scientific American was really into this medium busting thing and Dunninger was was right in it as well. Yeah. So Dunninger was really famous. He had not only stage shows, but he had radio shows. He had one of the first TV shows of, of this kind as a performer. He was wildly popular. He had a 40-year career in this and no one ever challenged or, or got any of these prizes because he was able to explain it all. Hmm. One of the prizes that he also gave, I forgot to mention earlier, was that he claimed to have secret messages from Houdini, Thomas Edison, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that they had all written and provided to him before their deaths. And so this challenge was he would give $10,000 to the person who could correctly predict what those messages said. And one person attempted it. Mm-hmm. And he said that is 100% false <laughs> to that. Was there any independent corroboration of what those messages were? Or was he just like claiming to have these messages uh, that he had just memorized? I believe they were written down somewhere. I don't know the answer to that. As far as I know, there was very few people that actually challenged it. So that that I'm not entirely sure. And you have that catch-22, because if you show other people, then other people will know what the message is. Then they can tell people who can... Right get into the challenge and it's not a great situation for proving something but it's an interesting challenge nonetheless right another fun correlation um the that george valentini or whatever his name was another (laughs) behind the mask magician like that guy no the guy who was uh the medium who used the trumpet who was oh right right yeah yeah um he claimed to be able to get the spirits from the other world to leave their fingerprints behind. And at one point he claimed that one of the fingerprints was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And they proved that it was actually his big toe. (laughs) (laughs) And then other marks he would make with like his elbow and stuff. Like it was such a scam. That's so, that's so wonderful. That's, that's hilarious. You gotta admire the griff. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. So Dunninger offered these challenges quite openly to people. He had multiple going on and none of them were ever claimed there. Now, remember how I mentioned how he was sort of a mentalist Mm -hmm. in the act there? Well, he sort of portrayed himself as a telepath. (laughs) So that's interesting. So on the one hand, he's chasing these mediums and calling their seances baloney, which, to be fair, they were. On the other hand, he's talking about how he's using sort of telepathic powers in order to be able to read people's minds there. And he was really defensive of this. So he offered another $10,000 challenge to anyone who could prove that he was, in fact, using stagehands or assistants to read minds. So it was sort of a prove me wrong kind of challenge. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So he was a very interesting fellow. (laughs) You you know, like... That does kind of fit in with the personality that you described, this Mm -hmm. hard-charging guy. It definitely does. Although he only claimed his accuracy was about 90%. Yeah. So, you know, he's fallible, too. (laughs) Some sources that I read said that, oh, he didn't actually think he was a telepath. He was just really good at things. But then this very long article from Life magazine in 1944, he apparently... at least in the quoted bits, he refers to himself as having telepathic powers multiple times. So, you know. I have questions. Yes. I don't know if I can answer them. <laughs> he could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's basically who my questions were directed at. Yeah. Okay, Laura, don't worry. Yeah. Sorry, Lauren. I, uh, uh, yeah. So some of his critics, of course, there were critics at the time for him. And they mentioned that most likely he was a good magician and carried those sleight of hand or those suggestive reasoning type uh, type skills with him. And he was very observant and very quick with these types of things. And so he would both know how to get people to start thinking certain things and then be able to pick up on their little cues and that as well during his stage shows. So now, s- standard mentalist tricks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, standard mentalist tricks. By all accounts, he was very good at it so much so that people did wonder what's going on here one of his bits was actually that he would do distance telepathy and so there's actually a winnipeg connection here so during one of his stage shows he was in new york doing a show and he was on the phone with the mayor of winnipeg and he was he was asking the mayor of winnipeg to draw a card from a deck of cards that he had And Dunninger wrote down his prediction in New York and dropped the piece of paper on the floor. And then in real time, asked the mayor of Winnipeg to read out the card there. And then he picked up the paper that he had dropped and it was revealed that it was the same card. And the audience went wild. (laughs) Was it the three of clubs? It was not. It was the seven of hearts, I think. Was it actually the mayor of Winnipeg or was it somebody in the other room? Well, this is the thing. When you do this distance stuff, <laughs> how do we video know? Conferencing. How, yeah. Yes, they didn't have video con- conferencing. And how do we know that they didn't have a phone call a week ahead of time saying, hey, say the, the seven of clubs, right? Yeah. Or the seven of hearts or whatever it is. You know, it, it's, it's astounding. I, I, I don't know necessarily. I just thought the Winnipeg connection was cool, so I was going to bring that in. So, Joseph Dunninger, by all accounts, a great performer, brazen as hell, had his own challenges, but also his own things that people should have been skeptical about. Yeah. As do all skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that 
you know, since the dawn of time, skeptics and magicians have been stacked one on top of the other. Sexy. <laughs> oh. And now Jem with a tale of murder and magic. The Great Tantra Challenge was a 2008 event broadcast live on India TV. Unlike other paranormal challenges, there was no money on the line. Instead, it was one man's reputation pitted against another man's life. <laughs> so lower stakes. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of viewers tuned in to watch a tantric named Pandit Surinder Sharma attempt to murder Sanal Edamaruku, president of Rationalist International, with magic. At this point, listeners not already familiar with the story might be a little confused, so let's back up a little. As reported on NPR and in The Guardian, in early 2008, an Indian politician, whose name incidentally I was unable to find, claimed that one of her political rivals was attempting to harm her through Tantra. Tantra is an esoteric, there's that word again, spiritual tradition that shares roots with both Buddhism and Hinduism. Devotees of Tantra sometimes claim that it gives them access to supernatural abilities, so-called black magic. Sanal Edmaruku was invited to be a guest on a program on India TV called Tantric Power vs. Science, alongside Pandit Surinder Sharma, a tantric guru. On air, Edmaruku expressed skepticism that tantric <laughs> magic could actually pose any danger to the politician, and Sharma replied that his study of tantra did indeed give him supernatural abilities, including the power to kill a man in a matter of minutes. Edmaruku responded with a laugh, saying, All right. Prove it. Kill me right now. <laughs> the way Edamaruku tells it, Sharma was caught between a rock and a hard place. He must have known that he couldn't kill Edamaruku, but he also knew that if he backed down, then his reputation would take a big hit, and he might lose some of the high-profile clients who paid him for his supernatural assistance. So, Sharma began to chant. I'll quote Sanal Edamaruku's piece in The Guardian here. After several rounds of chanting failed to knock me out, he tried the whole arsenal of his tantric gimmickry on me, obviously without any result either. I was just laughing. In his embarrassment, he proposed that I was protected by a supreme god whom I served, never mind that I'm an atheist. Finally, he resorted to foul play, pressing his thumbs against my temples hard enough to kill me the conventional way, but was cautioned by the umpiring anchor. With no way to escape, he upped the stakes and agreed to perform the ultimate destruction ceremony that would kill me dead sure. The program was coming to a close, but with Sharma still chanting, India TV threw up a breaking news chiron and rolled right over the next scheduled program. <laughs> Eventually they broke, but both participants reconvened for another breaking news special that evening. Edamaruku describes the scene, quote, Me sitting on the tantric altar... Blazing flames, white smoke, voodoo doll, peacock feather, mustard seed, and all that. The master, besmirched with ashes from the cemetery ground, and after the prescribed ritual consumption of sex, meat, and alcohol, at his tantric best, was assisted by a chorus of vigorous mantra chanters. I was laughing throughout, not just because it was a scene of superb absurdity, but mainly because I felt that so many people out there in front of their screens urgently needed a signal from me that there was nothing to be worried about. In fact, I laughed the tantric out of power. After hysteric escalation and a dramatic countdown, it all ended, as you would well have anticipated, with the defeated tantric silently quitting the field, down 
out and over. <laughs> While Edamaruku is best known for challenging India's tantric gurus, perhaps surprisingly, it was his defiance of the Catholic Archbishop of Mumbai that got him into his most serious trouble. In 2012, Edamaruku traveled to Our Lady of Velankani Church in Mumbai to investigate a crucifix that reportedly dripped water from its feet. You folks remember this? Mm-hmm. While the Catholic Church never officially recognized this as a miracle, parishioners were apparently collecting the droplets as holy water, some even going so far as to consume it. Yeah. That is the upsetting part in this, When you, once you figure it out. Noting that the wall was wet, Edamaruku surmised that the drip was being fed by capillary action. He quickly located the source of the moisture, a clogged drain fed by a toilet in a nearby room. So upsetting. Following the revelation, the Catholic Secular Forum, an ironic name, filed a complaint of blasphemy against Etamaruku under the Indian Penal Code, much of which was inherited from colonial rule. If found guilty under Section 295A, Etamaruku could face a steep fine and up to three years in prison. The Archbishop of Mumbai graciously offered to drop the charges, if only Edamaruku would apologize to the church, but Edamaruku refused and emigrated to Finland to avoid prosecution. Following the murder of fellow skeptical campaigner Narendra Dabokar in 2013, Edamaruku has expressed doubts that he will ever return to India. Yeah, no kidding. Hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty crappy way to be paid back for all of his good work. Yep. Be exiled from your country forever. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm ending my segment on a downer as always. <laughs> yeah, somehow yeah. I thought that this was going to end uh, on an up note since I know that nobody died in this challenge. <laughs> Except I ended it with somebody dying anyway. <laughs> and I even said on the way here, like, oh, you know, it's going to be this in this order. And Dave was like, you're going to let Jen end it? <laughs> it's okay. It's a good story. <laughs> today so as always we like to end the show with a discussion of what we've been enjoying lately i've got a uh, a couple things to mention does anyone else want to go first i've been reading the reconciliation manifesto it's hard to mm. read and has been really ramming home the point of let's just give back the land that we stole mm-hmm. and uh but i don't know if enjoy is the right word but it's really been it's a good book and people should read it the Reconciliation Manifesto. I was doing research to plan a retreat for UU board members, so I haven't been doing any entertainment <laughs> in a bit, so I'm going to set this one out. Retreat went well, though. Well, that's good. Uh, I'll mention, uh, before books, I'll mention a podcast that I've been enjoying. I may have mentioned it before, but The Anthropocene Reviewed by mm-hmm. John Green. It always makes me smile and makes me a little heartsick at the same time uh, every episode. It's one of the few podcasts that I describe as usually very beautiful. And now that the MCAT is done, <laughs> finally, I have time to read. And I've been on a bit of a fascism kick lately. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I should have phrased <laughs> yeah, that better. <laughs> that's the best way to say that. Don't worry, I'm still the quasi-anarcho-socialist you've all come to know and tolerate. But I finally got around to reading Umberto Eco's classic essay, Ur-Fascism. Oh, goodness. Uh, Eco grew up under Mussolini, the Hydrox to Hitler's Oreo. And that gave... <laughs> wow, well done. And uh, that gave him a particular insight into the characteristics of fascist movements. So I'd, uh, I'd recommend that essay. It's, you know, 15 pages or so. Um, 
I followed that up with Robert Evans' audiobook The War on Everyone, which explores the history of fascist terrorism in the United States. It was uh, It's crowd- crowdfunded, so it's free, and it's available online, uh, and it's both short and excellent, uh, a couple of audio hiccups notwithstanding. That's, <laughs> that's something we here at LUEE can't get too judgy about, <laughs> of course. I'll, uh, I'll put a link to all those in the show notes. I haven't been doing a ton of reading either. I'm reading a cheesy book that is all about ridiculous things, but I'm enjoying it because it's just fun and not work-related. So that's, yeah, that's really fun. Yeah, but I'm also reading a lot of work-related stuff, which yeah. is very interesting, <laughs> and, and I appreciate that. So there's been some cool stuff there. And I think I've mentioned it before. I'm sure I have, but Gastropod remains an amazing podcast. If you have not listened to Gastropod, you must go listen to Gastropod. It is incredible. I have tiny little quibbles with a couple of things in there, but by and large, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, I just listened to their show on CRISPR and and yogurt, or yogurt, as they say. (laughs) Yeah, that was awesome. That was really good. So yeah, my couple little quibbles with them is that they do tend to push organic a little bit. Well, they they both studied under Michael Pollan. So they've got that Pollan-esque kind of real food, hoity-toity, whatever yeah. that I don't love. The kind but, of butter is better Yeah, to- That's exactly it. Exactly it. But they've got a lot of really awesome stuff. And you so don't you mind their listen. hoity-toity accents? Only one has a hoity-toity <laughs> accent. And it's only like half an accent now. She's been in the U.S. for long enough. <laughs> Um, no, I don't, I don't mind that. But yeah, that's an amazing show. And I had, I had been on a little break from it and I listened to it again. I'm like, this is awesome. Excellent. I have a non-recommendation. Oh, (laughs) I saw a thread on this on Twitter and I looked it up so I could tell people not to buy it. The Yoga Ogre by Peter Bentley. It's a child's book and it's all about fat shaming an ogre because he doesn't fit into his gym jams. Oh, yikes. And how... You know, fat people shouldn't be in sports, and you're only doing it to lose the weight. So, oh, see, all the things that I was reading that were work related were like exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. So, give that one a miss, please. Yeah, that's that's pretty terrible. Last night, Lauren and I took our niece to Cirque du Soleil, and it was amazing, but it was also delayed for about 45 minutes due to our horrible weather. Yeah. Winnipeg is, uh, it's October 11th as we record this, and this is the, what, the, the second or third day of a massive blizzard that's been uh, going on? Yeah, forecasted to be 50 plus centimeters of snow falling on us. While we were waiting for this weather delay, I noticed that the guy in front of me was playing Mario Kart on his phone, which led me to the oh. understanding that I could download Mario Kart for my phone. So now I have Mario Kart on my phone, and that's the thing that you you can have so you should have that yeah huxley got that onto my phone oh, somehow no. <laughs> i watched that happen it was pretty funny <laughs> i'm just i'm looking at like he's three and he downloaded from? mario kart that's amazing uh it is free i attempted it briefly and decided it was a waste of my time <laughs> i enjoy it but i've only been playing it for a day and a half so <laughs> jim did an mcat he did good yeah, I, uh, I I did better than I had any right to, uh, so that's that's over. Uh, I've been fielding also. I must have clicked a box at some point that said that the AAMC could like release my scores to medical schools oh, no. that I don't apply to, and so I've been fielding like like emails like several every day from like podiatry schools and you know medical medical schools and also like an osteopathic college that Ooh. is trying to trying to get me to study there instead. 
And you're like, no thanks, I'm staying in Manitoba. Yeah, hopefully hopefully U of M is uh, is equally enthusiastic. <laughs> well, we're all very proud of you, Jim. Thank Yay. you. And thank you, uh, listeners. I would love, at this point in the show, to give a special thanks to all of the listeners who support the show by donating, uh, either one time or on a monthly basis. This is the part of the show where I'd love to read the names of some of our donors, but so far... <laughs> All of them have asked to remain anonymous or <laughs> have not responded to my emails. And frankly, who could blame them? <laughs> <laughs> but if you would love to have your name in the credits of this show or you'd like to help us keep this rinky dink ship afloat, uh, you can head over to LUEEpodcast.com slash donate where you can give us a one time donation. Uh, and we will thank you on air, or support us on an ongoing basis. If you can't afford to support us monetarily, the good news is that we also accept payment in the form of five-star reviews on iTunes. <laughs> and if you'd like to write a word or two in that text box, that apparently really helps. Use we, the algorithm. Yes. <laughs> we would love to thank some listeners at the end of the show, uh, but if you don't want to be thanked and you would just like to give us money with with no thanks in return, know that you will have our gratitude either way. We'll and, use uh, it to get better shields so that they don't have to edit out as many of my mouth sounds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lauren and I will thank you. So what are we talking about next month, Jim? So our next topic was partially inspired by a recent episode of The Anthropocene Reviewed, in which John Green reviewed the Kauai O'o. We'll be talking about species endangered and extinct. Hmm. All right. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Good night. Thanks, Ashley. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Lauren has a story about a medium. They have five seconds to tell it. My favorite medium. I can't remember her name. And she would specifically work with parents of deceased children. Yeah. And she would go into a cabinet and then the baby's head would pop out of the cabinet. What? And oh. the parent, the parents could touch the baby and like say goodbye and all that. Holy shit. It was her terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> I was trying to find her name and everything, but I can't find her on the internet. <laughs> But it was her boob. <laughs> oh, that's so many levels of awful. Parent <laughs> thinks that they're saying goodbye to their child. <laughs> Look at your little nosey. <laughs> Good lord. Did they not notice the nipple? That was the nose. Well, but that's not what noses feel like. <laughs> no, I didn't say that I invented it. I just can't remember what book I read it in. And it was, oh. it's just stuck with me since I was like 10 years old. Oh, see, Lord. Seems like that must be apocryphal. I don't know. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it for next show. I mean, I mean, babies can have soft heads, but not that soft. <laughs> Are you entirely a fontanelle? <laughs>